together for our speaker, Heath Adamson. Hey, good morning. Psalm 23 is where we will start. And so you can put a, a left index finger in Psalm 23 and then take your right index finger and go to Daniel 4. And if you don't have a paper Bible, you can, you can figure out how to do that with your iPad or your iPhone or your, your Galaxy, your Droid, whatever it is you're using these days. So it's an honor to be here. I just want to say out loud to the Lord, I'm grateful for mercy. I'm thankful that he takes us as we are. He doesn't leave us that way. Psalm 23, I believe it's up on the screens. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's read it together. How's that? Start over. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Says the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It's interesting. The psalm says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he makes us lie down in green pastures. How many of you know? Oftentimes it's easy for us to lie down in the valley and walk through green pastures. But he makes us lie down in green pastures and we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's interesting when you look at the language, the first half of the psalm, the, the language that the psalmist uses to describe God is, is interesting. And you can actually notice the distance that is between the psalmist and God. In the first half of the psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. But it's not in the green pasture where he begins to refer to God as you. It's in the valley of the shadow of death. In the green pasture, it's the Lord is my shepherd, more of an abstract term. But it is in, of all places, the valley of the shadow of death where he becomes you. And there is a realm of intimacy that is reserved solely for the believer, not in the green pasture, but in the valley. It says he leads us in paths of righteousness. Paths is plural. And in the psalm, we see two of the righteous paths that the sovereign one takes us down. One of them leads to the valley and one of them leads to the green pasture. And it's not in the green pasture where the Lord prepares the table. It's in the valley, the valley of the shadow of death, a phrase used 15 times in the word of God. And um, you don't care what it is in Hebrew, so I won't say that, but it's used 15 times in the word of God. And it really describes a place not worth going to, a place not worth going to. And yet it's a place that God chooses to lead us to. And he prepares a banqueting table, not in the green pasture, but in the valley of the shadow of death. And guess, guess who he invites? He doesn't just invite our friends, he invites our enemies. And he spreads a banquet for us in the valley, and he invites the enemy, and he makes the enemy sit there and watch. 
And we have a choice in the valley. We can either cause our gaze to land on the enemy or we can cause our gaze to land on the table. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And then it says this, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. To put this in context, at the time this was written, and and even to this day in the Middle East, if you are part of a nomadic tribe, what will happen is you're walking through the desert with your family, and and I'll put it into a personal term. I've I've married, been married to Allie for about eighteen and a half years, and uh, we have two daughters. Leighton is fifteen, and Dallin is fourteen, and I get to see them tonight. I'm looking forward to it. But let's say Allie and I are leading our kids through the desert, and off in the distance, I see your tent. I see a campfire. And what would happen is, is off in the distance, I would think, you know what, let's go over to their tent. And, and because of the custom of the day, you would host me. So I would walk up to your tent and you would greet me outside of your tent, outside of your, your family space. And you would greet me. You wouldn't wait for me to get to the tent. You would greet me. You would see me from afar off, or maybe one of your kids would see me and you would greet me. And before I could reach your tent, you come up and, and you greet me. And then you say, will you please come in and share a meal with us? And the first thing you did is you gave us oil. And the oil that you gave us had a few purposes. One, it was aromatic because after all, we are nomadic people. We are wandering around the desert and we don't have showers. So you give us oil and it had an aromatic uh, purpose to it. And it also had a medicinal purpose. You would give me oil and I would anoint my head with oil. And it would kill some of the critters that we accumulated in the desert. So if I had head lice, it could kill the lice. And so you gave me oil and I anoint my head with oil. So I smell a bit better. You don't have to worry about the critters. And we come into your tent and we sit down and we share a meal together. Whether you know me or not, the custom is you host me because I came into your space. And then at the end of the meal, here's the custom. At the end of the meal, you, if you're the leader of your your home or your, your clan, whatever, you came up to me. And intuitively, I knew I need to hold out my cup. And you walk up to me, and if you wanted to communicate to me, hey, you know what? The conversation's been delightful, but you really need to be on your way. You would fill my cup up halfway. But if you wanted to communicate to me, you know what? The conversation's been amazing. I would love to hear more stories. Let's do what Psalm 77 11 says, and let's remember the deeds of the Lord. Why don't you and your family spend the night with us? And we'll stay up late, we'll talk, and in the morning, we'll share breakfast together before you're on your way. If you wanted to communicate that message to me, you filled my cup up to the top. And what does the Lord do? It's not in the green pasture, but it's in the valley of the shadow of death, where he leads us, by the way, and where the path is described as a righteous one, where he spreads a banqueting table for us in the presence of all things, our enemies, Where he anoints our head with oil. And when we hold out our cup to the sovereign one. He doesn't fill it up halfway. And he doesn't even fill it up to the top. He fills it and it overflows. Isn't it interesting that there's a realm of intimacy. That God invites us into. And it's not in the green pasture. It's in the valley. And it's only a shadow by the way. 
It's in the valley of the shadow of death. There is this realm of intimacy that exists with God that is found only in the place not worth going to. And for just a few minutes today, what I want to do is talk to you about stewarding the unknown. Because it's easy in life for our circumstances to dictate our theology. And it is easy in life for us to allow what we see to assume that that's all that there is. But what you see is illusory and it is opaque. What you see is not all that there is. There is another story being written well beyond what you see. And well beyond what you hear. And what I'd like to do is take you to a story in the Bible. It's a true story. It really happened. And for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about the beauty that is found in the mystery that God brings into our life. In the New Testament, one of the Greek words for miracle is mysterion, from which we get our word mystery. When you think of a miracle, typically you think of somebody getting up out of a wheelchair and walking. And that's a miracle. When I think of a miracle, the the primary miracle I think of is somebody who is spiritually dead and Jesus rescues them. Like for me, that's like, that's it, right? But also the Lord, he can heal blind eyes and, and he can restore marriages that are dead. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted according to the hand of Job. But one of the words for miracle is mystery. And I'm finding more often than not what 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 we don't understand is is really a miracle shrouded in disguise it is it is what is unknown it is the the mysterious things that the lord uses to put his his fame and his power on display and oftentimes he never tells us why he does what he does so we're going to look at a story that on this side of the story we see all of the details laid out And we think, ah, Lord, I see your hand at work. But oftentimes when we look at our life, we have no idea what God's doing. And the same God who is present with Daniel is the same God who's present with us. So in Daniel chapter 4, what we're going to do is we'll start, I believe, in verse 25. And I'll just read a few verses to you. And then then we'll we'll dive into what what the context is here. It says, they will drive you from men... Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall weight you with the dew of heaven. And seven times, that means seven years, and seven times you will pass, will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives them to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Everybody say heaven rules. Does heaven always rule? Does heaven always rule in 1923 when Adolf Hitler is elected to office by one vote? Does heaven always rule? Yes, it does. Heaven always rules. And God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. So scriptures like John 3, 27 and Proverbs 21, 1. And scriptures like the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he chooses. I'm thankful for democracy. And I'd encourage everybody to vote regardless of your affiliation with a political party. But at the end of the day, how many of you know, even though our votes matter, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he chooses. We know that a man can receive nothing 
unless it is first given to him from heaven, John three twenty seven. We know that God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And the list goes on and on and on. No, it's true that heaven rules. But oftentimes when our circumstance does not align with our theology, we begin to wonder. So I want to take you to what is arguably, in my opinion, the most horrific, decrepit experience any human being can have apart from the Messiah being, being brutally murdered. And it's the story of Daniel. What you need to understand about Daniel is the book of Daniel is not in chronological order. The first six chapters of Daniel are historical, and the last six chapters of Daniel are prophetic. So when you read it from chapter 1 to chapter 12, you're like, what in the world is going on here? This doesn't make sense. It's, it's a form of ancient Hebrew literature. The first six chapters are historical. And then the second six chapters, the writer of Daniel helps us um, peel back the curtain and see what's going on in the unseen realm during the first six chapters of Daniel and into the years and ages to come. So what's going on is around the year 600 B.C., 586 B.C., uh, the Babylonian army under the leadership of a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, they come into ancient Jerusalem and they ransack the whole place. It would rival the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. It's not as if they just came in and kidnapped a few people. I mean, read the book of Lamentations. It's, it's a great depiction of what was really going on. They slaughtered people. They killed people. They picked up Hebrew children and historians document that they would take the babies. And I apologize, it's, it's, it's incredibly brash, but they would take the children and throw them against the side of cliffs. And they would place wagers on how, how much they would, they would explode. I mean, just imagine what it's like to be a parent and you see that. And people, the Babylonian army comes in, they kill your wife, they do horrible things that I don't even want to get into... And then what they do is they, they abduct or kidnap some people. And Daniel is one of them. And, and what's it like growing up in a home where you are taught that the God you pray to is sovereign? They were monotheists. That means they believed in one God. So what is it like growing up in a home being told that, God, that the God you talk to can do all things? The God you speak to is the omni-God. He's, he is the one who is highly exalted above all. He's the one who speaks and things are created. What is it like being taught that the God you talk to is sovereign over Baal? The God you talk to is sovereign over Marduk, which was the name of the Babylonian God. And all of a sudden, where in the world is God when your family is killed, your children have been murdered, and you've been chained, and you're being hauled off to another country? Many of us can't relate. Some of you can. Some of you can. But but the reality is, is I don't know about you, I would wonder, God, why didn't you stop this from happening? Now, is God responsible for that? No, Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for that. Did God prevent Nebuchadnezzar from doing it? No. Why? I have no idea. You're taught that the God you talk to is sovereign and the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. That means there's no longer any sacrifice for sin left. You can't make atonement for your sin. So they relied heavily on the high priest to make atonement once a year for their sin. So not only is your family dead, the temple is destroyed, which means you cannot make atonement with God. The sacrificial system is gone. The temple is gone. They believe that if you had your own land or your own property, you were favored and blessed by God. They no longer have their own country. There is a direct relationship between 
the power of a god and the health of their nation. So the Hebrew nation is basically dilapidated, which means their god must be dead. So they have told everybody, our God is sovereign. Remember, their God is the one who parted the Red Sea. Their God is the one who caused 185,000 Assyrians, I believe, to just be miraculously killed. So everybody feared the God of the Hebrews, and yet all of a sudden, he seems to be vacant. And so Daniel finds himself in the ancient Babylonian culture. He will be trained in the customs and religions of the ancient Babylons. And maybe you know the story. He will at one point become an ambassador or emissary and eventually be dispatched to go back to the place from which he was kidnapped from. And he will, he will serve as an extension of Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. Nebuchadnezzar was a tyrant king. He was a tyrant king. And he had a 43-year reign as king. And what's going on in the first four chapters of Daniel is Daniel has these encounters where he is told, you can't pray anymore. Well, Daniel stands his ground and God gives him favor. He has these moments where the king, the one responsible for destroying his country and for all practical purposes, killing his, quote, God, is, is having dreams. And somehow Daniel finds himself front and center where he is summoned to basically explain what the dream means. And that brings us to Daniel 4, where the king has a dream and Daniel interprets it. And Daniel's interpretation of the dream is basically this. And you can, you can read the whole chapter on your own later. I'd encourage you to, by the way, because I'm skipping a boatload of content just for the sake of time and also for the sake of clarity. He has a dream and basically, and this is documented, not just in the Bible, it's documented in history. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most prolific king that's, that's present in that day, he goes insane and he loses his marbles and he literally crawls around on the ground for seven years and he eats grass like a cow. Okay, it would it would I mean, just it, it would be like our president or Donald Trump or whoever. It would be like somebody that is known to be uh, somebody with a with a. A platform, a political platform, Obama, Trump, Clinton, Cruz, whoever. It would be like one of them becoming the leader of the, of the country and all of a sudden, bam, they flip out. And just imagine you flip on Fox News or NBC or whatever, and there they are standing outside the White House. Well, today was a great day at the White House. And you look behind and there's the president crawling around eating grass like a cow. It happened for seven years. I mean, it's crazy. So the guy loses his marbles for seven years. And then after seven years, this is what takes place, starting in verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They will make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times, that means seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives them to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the world, or the word was filled, con fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Verse 34, at the end of the time, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Listen to how he describes God. 
This is his understanding of God after seven years of insanity. Nobody taught him this, by the way. He didn't go to a, a class to learn this. This is what he knew about God when God awakened his soul. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And watch this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Wow. Why didn't God stop Nebuchadnezzar from invading Jerusalem? I have no idea. It doesn't matter. Here we see... On the other side of the curtain, the man responsible for destroying the temple and a nation, just like that, a voice from heaven speaks to him. He goes nuts for seven years. And then at the end of seven years, God sovereignly restores the man. It says that greater majesty was restored to him. Aren't you thankful for the mercy of God? God restores him to the throne. He's still the leader of the country. He grows and increases in excellence. And not only that, on, in my opinion, in the Old Testament, this is the greatest conversion story. If I can even use the word conversion. This is the greatest example. This guy is like Adolf Hitler getting saved. And for the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he serves Jehovah. He calls him the Most High. The one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's amazing. Just like that, God speaks and everything changes. How many of you know that that can happen today? How many of you know that what's going on in, in, in places where stability and safety is a, is a bygone era, that God can just sovereignly speak? And he's doing it, by the way. I wish we had time. To all share the stories of what God has done in our lives. He's the sovereign one. He is who he says he is. Now, if I'm Daniel, here's what I'm thinking. Oh, my word. Nebuchadnezzar just met God. Pack up, kids. We're going home. I'm being facetious. I don't know if he had kids. We're going home, kids. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to rebuild our home. We can practice our Hebrew faith again. It's a good day. And that's not what happens. Daniel is stuck in ancient Babylon, serving under a king who knows God now. But this king will eventually die. And after Nebuchadnezzar dies, a few other kings arise to leadership on the throne. And none of these kings know God. And none of these kings are interested in worshiping Jehovah. And if I'm Daniel, I have just watched God sovereignly change a man's heart and subsequently change an entire kingdom. And I would wonder, why in the world has God not released me to go home? Why in the world am I not lying down in the green pasture? I just saw God change everything and I still feel like I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I think God showed Daniel that I can prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies 
But sometimes God doesn't uproot us from the presence of our enemies. Sometimes he wants us to feast. And that's what happens. 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar dies, we come to Daniel. I'm sorry, 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar meets God. After he dies, we come to Daniel 5. Now that's 30 years. 30 years from Daniel seeing God change Nebuchadnezzar's life. Nebuchadnezzar dies 30 years after the miraculous conversion. We come to Daniel 5. Now, what's going on in Daniel 5? And I won't take time to read it. But what's going on in Daniel 5 is the king of Babylon, who is actually Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It says Nebuchadnezzar was his father, but there's no Chaldean word for grandfather. So we translate it father. Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is now ruling in Babylon and he decides to throw a party and honestly he decides to make fun of God he decides to make fun of the God who miraculously rescued his grandfather and so he calls for the articles the gold articles that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and they're throwing a party and it, you know they're they're trying to blaspheme God and they're being sacrilegious and they're throwing a party, doing all sorts of nasty things with the utensils that came from the temple. And the king is throwing a party. He's surrounded by all of his friends. He's living in the lap of luxury and everything's good. Now, in order to understand what's about to happen, let me give you a boatload of information about ancient Babylon, okay? So here's what I found out. Ancient Babylon was surrounded by walls. There were 56 miles of what I would consider impenetrable walls. The walls were 22 feet thick. How in the world do you get through a wall that's 22 feet thick without like a tank? Well, back then they didn't have tanks, right? So it'd literally be like the walls are as thick as this stage. And the walls were not only 22 feet thick, they were 90 feet high. That's nine stories. So go downtown, look at the ninth story. That's how tall their walls were. There were over a hundred guard towers and the guard towers were 10 stories tall in the middle of the city of ancient Babylon There was a 650 foot ziggurat. It would be eerily reminiscent of the ancient tower of Babel 650 feet that's 65 stories Okay, go downtown and look at the big buildings 65 stories This for all practical purposes. This is a fortress. It would be like going to New York City surrounded by these walls the Euphrates River flowed through the heart of the city, which means they had an unlimited supply of water. And the ancient historian Herodotus tells us that at this point in Daniel 5, the Babylonians had approximately 20 years worth of food stockpiled in the city. They were ready and waiting for a siege. Nobody could break through the walls. Nobody could destroy the bronze gates. Nobody could wait Wait their turn. There wasn't an army that could surround ancient Babylon and just wait for everybody to starve. They had enough food and enough seed to live forever. This king in Daniel 5 is completely safe. He's rich. He's protected. It's no wonder he would forget what the sovereign one did in his grandfather's life. And he throws a party. And he's mocking God. And in the middle of the party, it says it in Daniel 5, in the middle of the party, a hand appears and writes on the wall. 
That's creepy. (laughs) Right? That's creepy stuff, man. And this is what it says. Verse 24 in Daniel 5. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. Him is God. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. And this is the interpretation of each word. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Wow. Walls 22 feet thick, 90 feet high, unlimited supply of food and water. Very modern army at that time. The gates of the city were bronze. Interestingly enough, I don't have time to get into it. But 160 years before this, God speaks to an ancient prophet named Isaiah. And God tells the ancient prophet named Isaiah, there will be a king named Cyrus. 160 years before he was born, there will be a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus, who is not a believer, is called God's anointed one. Isn't it interesting that God can summon an unbeliever and call them his anointed one? No, Proverbs 21, 1 is true. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he chooses. 160 years before he's born, God, by name, in the Bible, more than once says, Cyrus will be used to rebuild Jerusalem. That prophecy is written at a time when Jerusalem hasn't even been destroyed yet. Oh, this must be a false prophecy. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem is already be Jerusalem is already built. Duh. And 160 years later, Daniel 5, he's storing a party. And guess what the name of the Persian gen, Persian king is, whose armies are about to destroy Babylon? Cyrus. And ironically, it talks about the gates will will not be broken down. It talks about the gates of the city that Cyrus, in in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, it talks about how the gates won't be broken. Herodotus discovered that evidently the ancient gates of Babylon on the night it was destroyed were left inexplicably unlocked. And not one of the gates were broken down. How in the world do you invade a city without breaking down the gates and without breaking down the walls that are 22 feet thick? Well, at the very moment, it was actually October 10th, 539 B.C. It's documented well in history. 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. October 10th, 539 B.C. Daniel 5, he's throwing the party. The hand writes on the wall, you've been weighed in the scales of justice and been found wanting. And at that very moment, the Persian army, two generals named Gabrius and Gadares, had surrounded the city and they diverted the Euphrates River into a nearby swamp. And the Persian army snuck in underneath the walls of the city, completely undiscovered. And the very night that Belshazzar is throwing The party, that very night, the Persian army destroys the Babylonian kingdom. It's unbelievable. The detail in Isaiah and Jeremiah about Cyrus is is striking. I'd encourage you to read it. It'll just blow your mind. And if I'm Daniel, here's what I'm thinking. All right. I just saw it happen again. Not only did God convert Nebuchadnezzar. 
But God just destroyed the whole Babylonian kingdom. And now the Persians are taking over. Guess what, kids? We get to go home. We get to rebuild the temple. We get to rebuild our home. And we get to practice our Hebrew faith again. But that's not what happens. Daniel, who is probably in his late 80s at this point, doesn't get to leave Babylon. Instead, God will keep him, not in the green pasture, but in the valley of the shadow of death, where Daniel will feast in front of his enemies. God showed Daniel a lot of things that are going to take place in the last days. If you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand Daniel. Daniel's the key. And God really shows Daniel a lot of things that are relevant to, regardless of your end times theology and eschatology, there, there's a lot of stuff in there that really matters to us. God shows Daniel the different empires that will take place in history. He sees the Babylonian Empire, obviously, then the Persian Empire. Then he sees the resurgence of, of the, or I'm sorry, the emergence of the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, then the end times empire that will be led by the son of perdition or the man of lawlessness or another synonym is the Antichrist. He sees all of this. He also sees a great end times awakening where those who know their God will be strong and do great exploits. And God shows Daniel like thousands of years of history. He has dreams and visions. He sees prophetically into the future. Not only does Daniel see God sovereignly awaken the heart of a tyrant king named Nebuchadnezzar. Not only does Daniel see God sovereignly bring down the Babylonian empire. Not only does God show Daniel like the different empires throughout the age and end times eschatological events. But Daniel does what I would do. It's in Daniel 12 verse 8. Daniel just asked God a simple question. He says, hey, what does all of this mean? What does all of this mean, God? And look at God's answer. Verse 8, I heard and I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Verse 9, and, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. That's ridiculous. <laughs> God showed him all of this. And, and Daniel asked a simple question, what does this mean? And God doesn't tell him. It's rude. <laughs> and how many of you know that the Lord seldom tells? Gene Edwards, the great author of A Tale of Three Kings, said, and I quote, How certain we mortals can be of things that even the angels do not understand. It's a fascinating story. God can turn the heart of a king. God can bring down an empire just like that. God can speak to you and show you what's going to happen in the future. And in the midst of all of that, it rarely happens in the green pasture. It happens in the valley. Where he throws a great party. And he prepares a table for us in the presence of of all things, our enemies. And he anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. For some of us, we just need to be okay with our cup overflowing in the valley and not in the green pasture. Because you know what I found in my study of the phrase, the valley of the shadow of death in the Bible, 15 times? I've found that there's a lot of evidence that the green pasture 
and the valley of the shadow of death are actually the same place. It just comes down to our perspective. If you would have asked Daniel, are you in the valley of the shadow of death? Daniel 1, he probably would have said, yeah. Daniel 4, Daniel 5, I have a feeling he would have said, no. I haven't been to that valley for a long time. Look around. Don't you see how green this place is? So, Lord, help us to see what we cannot see. And help us to know what we cannot know. What we know is we serve a God who can speak. And the hearts of kings can melt like wax. What we know is we serve a God who can cause our quality of life on the earth to bloom. What we know is we serve a God who can just with a the move of a hand change an entire empire. We serve a God who hundreds of years before an event, you can put the name of the king responsible for an event in the Bible. Striking detail how an empire will fall. You can speak to us and show us the days ahead. But I guarantee God, Daniel had no idea what you were doing. I guarantee he had no idea. And I'm thankful that we have the word of God to show us what Daniel did not see. And yet like Daniel, I believe each one of us find ourselves in a situation where we really can't fully comprehend. It's the mystery Mysterion, we are stewards of the unknown. And it's my prayer, O oh God, that you would give us a gift, the gift of understanding so that our circumstance does not dictate our theology. And maybe, just maybe, as we've been talking about being stuck in the valley of the shadow of death, would the God that you would open up our eyes so that we could see that actually we are in the green pasture. We just never noticed before. When asked two questions, the first question is this. I want you to know that God can breathe life over dead people. And um, if God can save me, he can save anybody. The first Bible I ever read was a satanic Bible. Steeped in witchcraft. Had a lot of problems. I don't want to get into it. But Jesus rescued me. And so you may be a Harvard-educated attorney and living a life of affluence, or you may be somebody who finds yourself not just on the, other, on the wrong side of the tracks, but you just think, my life is pointless. Whether you're one or the other, you need Jesus. Jesus is no respecter of persons, and at the end of the day, one day we'll stand before him and he'll look into our eyes. And there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. If you're in the room and you say, you know what? I need Jesus to change my life. I'm not asking you if you're a good person. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. You can spend eternity apart from God with baptismal waters dripping off your chin. I'm not asking you, uh, have you made bad decisions? I'm asking you, has Jesus changed your life? Is he your savior? Is he the leader of your life? Has he wrapped his arms around you and given you a new identity? 
And you may have a lot of questions, I do too, but I'm asking you, have you answered the ultimate question, which is, what are you going to do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? He wasn't just a philosopher. He wasn't just a teacher. He's not just a religious figure. He is the Son of God, and he is who he says he is. And he came to the earth, and he lived a life you could not live, and he died a death you could not die, and he was miraculously raised from the dead, and he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. He is who he says he is. And if you need Jesus to change your life, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand now, please. I'm going to look over to my left, and I'm going to pan across the room once. That's me. I need Jesus. That's a good move. Anybody else? Up, 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 up. Yes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes. Good move. Thank you, miss. Thank you, miss. Thank you, miss. Thank you, miss. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Thank you. It's a good move. I'm going to ask everybody to stand quickly. I'm out of time. I'm going to ask you a second question. How many of you would be vulnerable and say, you know what? I want to ask God to give me a perspective today because I want to make sure that I don't call. I want to make sure that I don't call my circumstance a valley when it's actually a green pasture. And you would just be willing to humble yourself and say, in the presence of God, oh Lord, I surrender even when I don't understand. I trust you. And if that's you, if anything I've said today, which is actually the Holy Spirit speaking to you, because nobody is a good enough communicator to awaken the human heart. If anything that has been said today has resonated with you and you just say, I want to just take a few moments and say, Jesus, I'm here in the midst of your circumstance. I'd like to see your hand, please. All over the place. Thank you, Lord. You can put them down. They're going to lead us in song. And if you raise your hand to meet Jesus, I'm going to ask you to make a public commitment. I'm going to ask you to do what I did when I was 17. And if you raise your hand today and say, God, I just want to encounter you for a few moments in my valley or in my green pasture, I'm going to ask you to make a public commitment. As soon as they begin to sing, if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to slip from where you are and come and posture your heart towards heaven for the next five or six minutes. Then pastor will come. He'll give you instruction for those of you who said, I want to meet Jesus. For those of you who said, I want to have a heavenly perspective of my circumstance. Pastor will come and bring leadership. But for the next five minutes, I'm going to ask you to make a move towards God and express through your own words and worship and prayer what you need today from your father. Come, please. Go ahead, team. If you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to come and respond to the Lord. Talk to him. I just release freedom over the place. For those in the valley, may they see how fertile it is. For those in the valley, may they see the banqueting table you spread, God. Surrounded by their enemy, may they see that they're surrounded by God.